What's going on, good people, and welcome to Live by the Three, your Raptors podcast with your boy Curly. Big shout out to listeners new and old for tuning in. I appreciate every single one of you. Now, with media day right around the corner, only means one thing, the start of NBA training camp. And I thought it would be fun, with the, especially with the anticipation of this Raptors team going into the 2022-2023 season, I thought it would be fun to do a little bit of a deep dive on three players that I think is going to be under the microscope this season. And while I am going to do an episode later on revolving around training camp and the rotational pieces and other players competing for the final two roster spots on this team, not going to be my focus on this episode. And I think it's important to acknowledge that while those on the bench and those competing for guaranteed contracts or on two-way deals or Exhibit 10 deals, it's very easy to critique them as they are competing. But I think it's important that we hold our top eight, possibly top nine players to a similar standard that they can always improve and be better and find different ways to make this team more complete. And I'm going to start off at number three, Pascal Siakam. Yes, Mr. All-NBA himself. And you're probably wondering why I have Pascal coming in at number three. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that Pascal Siakam is arguably the best player on our team. And I don't even think it's really arguable. If it wasn't for Pascal in the second half of the season, or at least in the, around January onward going into the playoffs, that we would have been a play-in team and anything could have happened then, or we could have fallen out of contention altogether. This is not to discredit what Freddie did on the first half of the season that ultimately led to him being a well-deserved all-star. But with Freddie out of the lineup for most of the second half of the season, especially after all-star break, we relied so much on Pascal Siakam leading the way. And he just continued to get better as the season went on and you couldn't have been more impressed with his level of play especially with the amount of criticism that he took uh, underperforming in the bubble and some of it was well deserved but I think that expectations have tapered a little bit coming off the championship win up until this point but he's not backing down from the challenge and if you've been paying attention this past summer when he was performing at the Rico Hines runs at the end of it all he said that he's not even where he wants to be yet and I think that's very reassuring as a Raptors fan and I think it's also kind of scary for opposing teams in the NBA that a player who's averaged more than 21 points per game in the last three seasons who was an all-star, all-NBA, NBA champion, and one most improved at one point, is only getting better. And some would argue, well, there's not much more that Siakam can do. And while this point might be obvious, I think it's important to acknowledge that he needs to be a better shooter from the perimeter, and especially to help keep defenses honest. And we saw that during the Rico Hines runs, and you can downplay it all you want that you know they're not playing against NBA talent you know there's rules and limitations it's different in the NBA whatnot but to see him look at a weakness of his game and just really work on it all summer long it for me offers reassurance to the fact that he knows what he needs to improve on and he's doing his best to be better off the dribble better on a catch and shoot better in the mid-range 
almost becoming a three-level scorer, which is something that we desperately need, especially in the half court. Not to mention that when opposing defenses have played us in the past, all they do is clog the paint and force us to take shots from the perimeter. Well, if Siakam can get back to the percentages that he was at during the championship run from the three shooting just around 36% and hitting about two threes per game, it's gonna open things up for post-oriented players like Scotty Barnes and OG Ananobi. OG, not so much, but he has taken it in the post in the past, and you definitely want to take advantage of everyone's skill set, especially in our half-court offense. So if Pascal can become a better shooter from the perimeter, it opens things up for everybody. At number two, I have Gary Trent Jr. If you didn't know, I'm a huge Gary Trent advocate. And I think it's interesting that there's quite the divide at the level of importance of Gary Trent Jr. on this team. He is our best shooter. There were stretches last season, especially in the back half of the season, that he had stretches of games where he's scoring 30 points or more and we needed those games to send us over the top and get us out of the play-in and ultimately finishing with the fifth seed but having somebody with the ability to stretch the floor out again for the similar reasons that i mentioned for pascal is going to open things up for everybody especially since we are an in the paint or in the post dominant team for the most part Obviously, when the roster is healthy, that will change. But for now, he is going to be under the microscope this season. And I say that for the simple fact that he's essentially playing on a one-year deal, a contract year. He does have a player option, but as he continues to get better, and he obviously had his best season as a Raptor in his young career, I imagine if he continues to trend in that direction that he is going to be looking for a big payday. And and we've seen it multiple times throughout history where players in a contract year absolutely go off. Some are able to maintain it, some taper off, some just fall off the wagon once they get paid. But I definitely don't see that being the case with Gary Trent Jr. Having said all of that, there are areas of improvement and I'm gonna start with, he needs to become a better finisher around the rim. Now, over the summer, we've seen clips of him working on his floater game, but he needs to have an ability to get to the basket. And I say that because he takes a lot of jump shots. And as a shooter, I'm not really gonna complain, but sometimes you have to mix it up. And when the shots aren't falling, what else are you going to do to be effective or what else are you going to do to have an impact on the floor when you're struggling or you're going through the the ups and downs of an NBA game and I think if he can find a way to get to the basket and play through some of the contact not all of it he's not a very big guard I understand that and he doesn't have the athleticism to finish above the rim a lot of the times but if he can find ways to use his ability to sell a pump fake to create an opportunity to go to the basket and get fouled and up his free throw attempts that would be helpful for many reasons and he's around two attempts per game and two makes per game but if he can get that to quite possibly four 
maybe six. Six is pushing it, six attempts a game. But I would settle for at least a double up. That would be helpful. Another way is to become a better facilitator. There's been many times where he would take contested jump shots and there would be an open opportunity either in the corner or in the paint. And sometimes he hits them, sometimes he doesn't. So I guess becoming a better playmaker slash becoming a, a better decision maker will also be beneficial to his game. And I think one of the more important parts of his game that definitely needs to improve is being a better on-ball defender. Now, while he has taken a step forward in terms of being a better defender, especially this past season, Ken Birch acknowledged that going into last season that he was actually surprised as to how good a defender Gary Trent Jr. was. And he doesn't strike fear as an on-ball defender because he's such a small guard. The bigger wing players definitely take advantage of him, but he does compete on that side of the ball. And he did play the passing lanes very well, which is a very good trait to have, especially if you're looking to become an, a better on-ball defender, averaging 1.7 steals per game last season. But if he can find a way to stay in front of his man a little bit more play defense a la Fred Van Vliet kind of stick your hand in there and get the strip if he can just find a way to frustrate the offensive player more he can definitely make a very good case to look for the big payday that he's more or less in line for but it does seem like a heavy list for for Gary Trent Jr and I look at it like this that if you're going to do something very well or you have a skill set that is your go-to and in his case becoming a shooter then you need to be shooting and hitting at a high clip however way he humanly can but he definitely needs a little bit more uh, on the one-on-one the the between the legs step back or and sometimes contested step back is just not enough i do feel that he has youth on his side he knows what is expected of him He's basically earned his right to be a starter. I know there's a bit of a divide to put the best defensive team on the floor by starting Precious Achua, for example, but we've seen that movie before. Gary Trent Jr. doesn't play well coming off the bench unless the Raptors can sell him on that idea. But again, in a contract year, and especially when you need somebody with Gary Trent's ability to shoot the basketball, I think putting him on the bench would be an absolute waste. So he does have a lot of work to do, but I definitely feel that he's up to the task. And coming in at number one, and I'm probably gonna take some heat for this, but I'm committing to the idea. OG Ananobi, yes, the prodigal son of Masai Ujiri, the untouchable one among Raptors faithful, OG Ananobi. Now, I think this season is a very important season for OG. I think it's important to acknowledge that being regarded as one of the cornerstones of this franchise, being limited in terms of his availability has kind of affected his, I don't want to say value to the team because he's definitely a good glue guy or connector piece for this team. but maybe his overall worth to an extent and stick with me he hasn't 
played more than 50 games in the past two seasons. And the best ability is availability. Now, I don't want to make this about his injuries, but he's had multiple opportunities to show that he has the ability to take over the games. And while he has done it over various parts of the season, it's not to the point where you can feel comfortable where if Pascal goes down, for example, that he's going to be able to lead us to a victory. We saw it in the playoffs. He had a great individual performance against the Sixers last season, but you saw that the Sixers weren't really scared, hence why he was able to produce as much as he did. They basically said, okay, OG beat us, and he wasn't able to lead us to victory. While there is multiple reasons that that is indeed the case, we were battling injuries and ailments at that time, and I don't wanna put that all on him, but those are the opportunities that you're going to have and they're not going to come very often and unfortunately he underperformed in terms of leading us to victory but i think it's interesting to know what his mindset is and he definitely gives the appearance that he's not easily wavered by things i am curious especially with all the reports re regarding that he wants more touches and whatnot while they haven't been confirmed pascal og and freddie all came in at the same time and freddie become uh, being undrafted betting on himself and becoming an all-star and pascal that was a role player or regarded as a role player at best to getting all-star all nba acknowledgement both of them have been able to elevate their games to another level and while OG has remained consistent he's been slowly improving and that's not a knock against him I think we need to be a little bit more realistic with what OG is instead of what he could be I think for him going into a contract year next season this one is gonna say a lot about where he is in year six and areas of improvement for OG would definitely have to be a more reliable option in isolation. There's been multiple times where I've seen OG get the ball in isolation and on average six to 12 seconds, he is stationary dribbling before he makes up his mind. And I've always said that if OG gets the ball and he has his mind made up as to what he's going to do rather than trying to do that in between hezzy or crossover that if he just makes one move he has the physical ability to quite possibly overpower his opponents more times than not and we see him shy away from that and it's not a good look especially when there's going to be a tension on Pascal, on Freddie, and now with the emergence of Scotty Barnes, there are going to be more opportunities for OG to have success in isolation. And one of the ways that he can become better in isolation is to become a better ball handler. I absolutely have no faith when OG is dribbling basketball. I know that sounds kind of mean, but it's the truth. He's not a very good ball handler and for somebody that is going to be on the perimeter majority of the time, he should have the ability combined with his athleticism, he should be able to produce off the dribble 
on a more consistent basis. But I think instead of wanting more touches, I think he should taper his expectations and be a 3 and D player. Now, obviously, he can benefit from a little bit more pick and roll action since he can pretty much finish above the rim in most cases. But our half court offense isn't really conducive to a lot of our player skill set. But I think if we introduce a pick and roll a little bit more, it's going to benefit not only OG, but everybody. That is definitely one way that we can uh, maximize OG's skill set. But even though he has the fourth highest usage rate on this team, I don't see that changing. So I think the challenge for OG is that what are you going to do when the opportunities present itself? Is he going to be able to elevate his game to the level that people expect him to? Or if he's going to be much of the same? I think for me, if OG remains the same, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think what he expects to be and especially what his agency expects him to be, something doesn't jive with that thought process. And if, if you look at how his career has gone on, as the production increases, the games decreases. And it definitely begs the question if he can handle a bigger workload time will tell but i think out of everyone that i've mentioned i think og is the one under the most pressure to either live up to expectations or exceed expectations and i think it's a little bit unfair given what he has shown but it is what it is so hopefully og is up to the task so those are my three players that are under the microscope pascal Gary Trent Jr. and OG Ananobi in that order. So we shall see on what is, in my opinion, a very important season overall for the Raptors. So as we take a look around the association, shifting our focus from the Raptors, we look at the Pistons making some off-season moves, getting Boyan Bogdanovich from the Jazz for Kelly Olenek and Saban Lee and this is nothing more than a salary dump for the Pistons. Uh, Boyan is set to make around $21 million, if I'm not mistaken. It's definitely over $20 million. And the move seems kind of curious for a team that's definitely rebuilding around its youth. There's no question that the Jazz are in full rebuild. And God only knows what that team is going to look like this coming season. But it's definitely an interesting move for the Pistons. It gives them stability uh, as a good rotational piece, some veteran leadership. He's definitely lost a step defensively, but offensively he can take over a game. Doesn't happen often, but he definitely has the ability to shoot himself into a game and ultimately putting a team over the top. This was one of the players that I was hoping that the Raptors would have gotten, but salaries we would have had with salaries involved we would have to give up one of our key rotational guys or one of our top eight guys in order to get a player of Bogdanovich caliber and I didn't think it was necessarily worth it but I'm definitely interested in a deal for Jordan Clarkson and if this deal is showing anything that it might not take much to get Jordan Clarkson and quite possibly will be able to 
maybe shed some expiring contracts. I know there's a bit of a divide on whether the Raptors should go in for Jordan Clarkson, especially since he's not a quote-unquote good defender. But again, he can score outside, he can score inside, and he, he would bring an energy that is needed uh, off our bench. And if Boucher and Precious can continue to be that spark plug coming off, the spark plug, sorry, coming off the bench that we throw Jordan Clarkson into the mix, we can have one of the better benches that we've had in quite some time. Also, we have Robert Williams of the Celtics out for 8 to 12 weeks following a knee surgery. And we know that this past season and in the playoffs specifically that he was dealing with knee troubles. And there was a lot of speculation on whether he was brought back too early. And in my opinion, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the Celtics in terms of bringing players back a little bit too early we look at Isaiah Thomas he he hasn't been the same since coming back too early from his hip surgery and I know there was some reports saying that Robert's knee situation can't get quote-unquote any worse and he's a big man he's an athletic guy we've seen what happens to players that have of his stature don't necessarily come back and be the same player as they were following these knee procedures but I just found it interesting that one, that they rushed him back and two, uh, a couple days before training camp that now they've elected to get surgery. So definitely wondering what's going on in Boston, but there is a lot going on in Boston at, uh, right now and we're going to get into that shortly. And last but definitely not least, we have Andre Iguodala resigning with the Warriors for his 19th season and on his podcast he told Steph that this is the last one and he's not making any qualms about it but it definitely seems like he is on board with the idea that the Warriors are going to make that push for that back-to-back championship and I think with him going into into his final year Draymond in a contract year I believe Jordan Poole is one or two years from a contract year. Andrew Wiggins is going to be in that contract year. There's going to be a lot of motivation for these players going into this season. And they're definitely primed and ready to make that push for another finals run. But it's going to be interesting to see how this team is going to look after this season. With them being over the luxury tax, but... The Warriors owner is dead set on bringing all those people back. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all works, especially with the collective bargaining agreement. It's going to be up for review very soon, and you're definitely curious to know how that's going to affect the Warriors' chances in terms of keeping all those players. And lastly, I want to look at a couple topics that have been a little dominant for the last couple of weeks, one more recent than, than the other, and I'm referring to... The Phoenix Suns and Mercury owner Robert Sarver getting nailed with a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine for a history of racism, misogynistic behavior, and sexual predator-like behavior for the time that he's been an owner. And this was done, and this was served after an NBA internal investigation as you may or may not know 
assistant coach Earl Watson has even filed a report at at some point uh, against Sarver for his conduct as an owner. And what's interesting about that is he is now in position to sell the team. And he put out a statement, you know, saying that he's a man of faith and he's, he's definitely going to learn from his past transgressions. But he went a step further and saying the reason why he's essentially selling the team is because, quote unquote, cancel culture won't allow him to basically redeem himself. Well, in short, he's a loser, has been a loser. And I couldn't be happier to know that someone like Sarver is not going to be part of the NBA. Now, I know that across all sports that they are probably people similar to Sarver and their time will come but we're focusing on what has come to light and even if those things are still going on behind the scenes well hopefully this has quite possibly scared some of the owners straight and maybe will motivate them to change their ways and as I previously mentioned a lot of drama surrounding the Celtics well head coach Amy Odoka has been suspended for one year for violating team policies. Now, the rumor that is going around is that he had a, some sort of relationship with a woman. That was the initial report. Then there was another report saying that it was consensual. Well, now there is another report indicating that it was not consensual. The Boston Celtics had a press conference today on September 23rd, and it could not have been the mo a more vague press conference than what I watched. And it's a half an hour that I can't get, uh, get back. They didn't provide any details for legal reasons, and we definitely can appreciate that. But this was a situation that could have been handled differently. In my humble opinion, I think there were too much of a coward to fire Amy Udoka. Their expectation is that they're going to suspend him and then he can resume his coaching duties after June 30th. And it's like, what is the point after that? The reports were misleading. The press conference wasn't, did not provide any clarity. And while all the responsibility falls on Ime Doka's behavior, and he said that he's going to be willing to accept the punishment, and, I'm, and I think there was an opportunity that he had to resign from his position, but he, he decided to take full responsibility and accept the suspension. What is it going to be like when he comes back? I don't think he can come back from this. I think the Celtics had an opportunity to... I guess they don't really owe him anything, but they had an opportunity to let him go and seek employment elsewhere. If he's violating team policies, well, why are you, why do you want to bring that person back? It just ultimately doesn't make sense. It's not a very good look for the NBA right now, but it definitely begs the question that what was going on between two adults to a point, consenting adults, is getting more coverage than a man that has shown a history of all-round negative behavior. Could it be that he's, he's in a position of power because he's an owner? 
and Ime Udoka is a head coach and is technically an employee. All I know is that the inconsistencies is not a good look. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Didn't really want to finish on such a serious note, but again, the politics are a part of sports and it's something that we're going to have to deal with, at least in the short term. With that being said, I think as a Raptors fan, I definitely appreciate more that the Raptors keep things so close to the chest that we avoid these kind of situations. And if you look at the way that the Atlantic Division is shaping up, there's drama in New York, there's drama in Brooklyn, there's drama in the Celtics, and there was drama around the Sixers. So let's hope that that drama continues and that the Raptors can definitely take advantage. As usual, any news in relation to the podcast Raptors content, you can find it all on the Instagram page at live by the dot number three. That is L-I-V-E-B-Y-T-H-E period number three. Follow, like, comment. And I am officially on Twitter. So definitely give me a follow on there as well. Live by the zero three. That is L-I-V-E-B-Y-T-H-E zero three. Again, give me a follow definitely going to be pushing more content going into this upcoming season and until next time everyone please stay safe good people peace